From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Zachary Green, and for Joe Shaneman, it's State of Nevada. With the sun shining more and the weather starting to get warmer, it's the perfect time to start planning and getting your green thumbs ready for the spring gardening season. Planning now can help you to make the most of your gardens this spring, whether you're looking to grow your own fruits and vegetables or create a beautiful outdoor space to relax in. But it all comes with questions. Whether you start planting, if you fertilized your garden last spring, do you have to do it again this spring? What is the right amount of water to give your trees and plants this time of year? It can all be a little, well, overwhelming. But don't worry, we've got you covered. Luckily, we have two experts in the field, Norm Schilling and Angelo Callahan, hosts of Desert Bloom. They know more about gardening than most of us could ever dream of. Norm and Angelo, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having us. Good to be here. Yes, we are excited to be talking plants. And something that's really exciting is the fact that now's the time of year where we have to make a decision of going into our gardens, taking out all the old stuff and getting ready to plant some new beautiful flowers and veggies. Um, So I wonder, how do you recommend clearing out a garden to prepare for planting? First, you want to take a look and see what you have growing there. Um, One of the things that we, we don't really talk too much about is some of the earliest plants that we see in the beginning of you know, the end of winter, beginning of spring, some of the earliest, earliest things are weeds. So some of the grassy plants, the the the, the uh, bromes that, you know, they just pop up and they appear out of nowhere, but they really are not something you want to maintain. Also, a lot of the mustards, things that are really re- actually related to things like broccoli and cabbage, but these are, well, they're weeds. I mean, you can pull them up and eat them, but they are nonetheless weeds. Well, I, I think we were going to talk about plants, but you know, since we delved into weeds, here's the thing: don't ever spend a day weeding; it'll kill your love of gardening. Two, <laughs> <laughs> um, rainy days. The next day, go out and weed. Water acts as a lubricant in the soil. I like to, when I weed, sit myself, you know, if I've got weeds, okay, I will set myself a 10-minute goal. I will go out and I'll weed for 10 minutes and make some progress, and then, you know, I'll give myself five bonus minutes and feel really good about it. Don't try and take it all on. And here's the real key. You'll, you'll get to recognize weeds, right? You want to get them out before they go to seed. So the flower comes on, oh, that thing's going to go to seed soon, get it out of there. And finally, use a trowel, especially in, in moist soil, and dig down a little bit under the base, loosen it up, and then that plant will just pop right out. And I'm so. glad you said that, Norm, because I wanted to ask you about any, you always come in with these really cool tools every time you're in the studio, um, maybe some tools and techniques that we should be considering as we go into our yards. My personal favorite gardening tool is called a leshy digging tool. It's L-E-S-C-H-E. And it was designed for rock hounds. I've had mine for 30 years. I wear it every day when I go out on consultations. And it's forged steel. It's going to cost you 50 bucks around, right? It comes with a cool little holster. You wear it on your belt. Take it out in the garden. You can pry rocks out of the ground. You will never break it. It's a one-time lifetime investment. Before I had that, I broke, I don't know, like six, eight, ten trowels, right? Trying to just dig and, and move little rocks. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful long-term investment. You know, and while we're talking about cleaning out our gardens or taking out 
some of the old plants. Um, I have a question from Yvette who asks, how can you tell if a plant oh, is yeah. dead or dormant? And specifically, she wants to know about lantanas. <coughs> and I'm going to pronounce this one wrong. I think it's bougainvilleas. Bougainvillea. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, well, I'm glad she asked, and she actually mentioned that to me in the hallway just a minute ago as I was coming in. There's a really simple test to tell if a plant is dormant or uh, or dead. dead. You just scratch the, the young wood, and if it's green underneath there, it's alive. If it's brown and dry, it, that piece of wood is dead. If that piece of—so some plants die—like bougainvillea will die back in the winter. It used to freeze to the ground and die every year. Now that it's warmer in the valley, it's much less likely to do so. So as you work your way down, you may find live tissue down low. So you cut out the dead, you leave the live tissue, the plant comes back. Mm. And maybe what do you think we should do with our old plants or debris from the garden? Um, Should they be composted or disposed of in a certain way? Usually composting is the best bet. But remember, if it's a woody plant, you're going to have to really chop it up very fine because it's going to take a long time to break down. Um, But certainly, unless it's been infected with a disease, if you saw a lot of, or if you saw a lot of aphids or squash bugs, then don't put it in your compost because you're just asking for trouble. So if it's been a problem that died of disease or it died because the infestation of aphids simply overwhelmed it or they transmitted all manner of other diseases, you have to take that out, you bag it up, and that you do send to the dump. Now, how can you tell if the soil in your garden is ready for planting after cleaning it out? Is there a test you should perform or some signs that you should be looking for? Well, it really depends on what what kind of plants were in there before. So if plants have been growing successfully in there, then probably you can say that you have reasonably decent soil and you probably just have to amend it more with compost, which is something that you would do anyway at the beginning of the season because when you have a plant growing in the ground, it's pulling out nutrients from the soil. So you have to replenish those. Mm -hmm. But other than that, as long as things have been growing successfully, then you're probably okay. Uh, don't count on the weeds being the guide. I mean, even if the even if the weeds are growing successfully, I'm sure you've heard my definition of a weed is something I didn't plant that's growing better than the things I did. <laughs> nice. So we have a different perspective. Angela is a veggie person, right? Mm-hmm. Very much so, and me not as much. I'm I'm an ornamental guy. So mm. when I think of soils. of the time, I'm looking at thinking about planting in, pardon me, crappy soil, right? (laughs) It's it's our desert soil. It's low in organic matter. It's uh, maybe high in some salts. It's, there's, and it's, it's got a very high pH. Well, what does well in desert soils? Desert plants, right? And so I look at these, these, so I shouldn't have said crappy soils because they're not. Problematic, however. No, not even. So that's the thing. If... There's certain plants that will look at that really hot, sunny space with just, to us, by traditional terms, yuck soil. They're thinking, this is great. This is what I want to live in. This is what mesquites, palo verdes, desert willows, acacias, leucophyllums, hundreds and hundreds, no, thousands, tens of thousands of different species will sit in that soil and say, this is good stuff, (laughs) right? So the key to gardening success is put a plant where it wants to be, give it room to grow, and then drink wine. So... Oh, also, though, just to remind people that if you're planting in an area that's uh, in a development, 
a lot of that soil has been, a lot of the native soil is gone. Yeah, so yeah, there, it's disturbed you, you, soil. You will need to replenish some nutrients into that soil. Not a whole heck of a lot. It's not like you're planting, you know, a maple tree or something. Well, but I, you, you do need ideally, to. Ideally, ideally, when you, when you, when you, so you can't, you, you, you got your house, right? You bought a house or you inherited, you, you didn't, it's an old house, it's a new house, whatever. You don't know what you've got in your soil. Most people aren't going to do soil tests. So what you do is when you plant whatever you plant, if you plant a desert plant, overdig the hole about two or three times as wide, have it sloped out on the edges, and don't plant it, don't dig the hole any deeper than the plant. And then take, a, for desert plants, just a little bit of organic matter, maybe 5 or 10% by volume. What I mean is compost, bag of compost, or if you've made your own, whatever. Mix that in. And plant with that. And that's going to help the roots get out and get it off to a good start. And that's what it needs. We have a question from Susan from Las Vegas who asks, what can I grow in full shade that does well here with infrequent watering? Okay. Um, fairly infrequent watering would be uh, dwarf ruellia. Uh, you could do carissa, which is uh, has rather succulent leaves. Um, the hesperallos, which are red yucca. There's a smaller one called brake lights will do well in, in, in shade. Aloe vera, which is the medicinal aloe, is also a very beautiful succulent upright plant with beautiful form, attracts hummingbirds. That'll do well in shade. Mm. So, yeah, all of those will rock. <laughs> yeah, of course, not, not in full shade. But but relatively deep shade, as long as they get some brightness. You know, oh. it doesn't have to be direct light, but it can't be full shade. Yeah, and if you have if you have a, a space like five six feet, you can keep it cut back smaller. It'll get even bigger than that. There's a plant called L.A. Agnes ebengii or Ebbing's Silverberry, and it gets these little creamy white flowers that you can't hardly see. They're inside the plant, but it smells so good. Silverberry. Yeah, Ebbing's Silverberry. E b b i n g s. And there's even a variegated variety, and it needs some shade. And it'll take quite a lot of it, and just it'll anchor a corner, a shady corner, and just fill your yard with fragrance. Are the berries edible? I'd have to look it up. I don't know. I mean, I know birds will eat them because birds eat everything. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I, I have a question now from Vicky. This is for Angela specifically. Um, it says, I have a garden question. What are some companion plants you grow among your vegetables? Okay, depending on the vegetables. Um, for instance, things like tomatoes and peppers, they grow wonderfully well, uh, and uh, basil grows wonderfully well around it. Um, so that's definitely basil. Uh, garlic grows really well and actually tends to repel a lot of insect and, and uh, mammalian pests. Uh, a lot of times what will happen is a rabbit, if you have that problem, will come take a bite out of your garlic and say, Ooh. <laughs> I'm not going to have any more of that. Um, so that's often a good idea. Um, what doesn't seem to do well are members of that onion, garlic, chives family and um, thyme, the herb thyme. Really? It just does not seem to grow. And it, because, well, garlic is a very powerful kind of you know compound with lots and lots of, ke of chemicals that it produces. So it actually interferes with the growth of some other plants, just like, well, what is it, black walnut? You know, interferes mm -hmm. with the growth of a lot of other plants. Mm -hmm. So there, it's called allelopathy. So what you want to do is find things that benefit. And there's a bunch of books out there. There's one that's called Carrots Love Tomatoes and Roses Love Garlic. So there are a bunch of books out there on companion planting. 
So I want to ask this while we're on the topic. Um, I'm sure many people are thinking about what vegetables they can grow this time of year, kind of our end of winter, early start of spring. Um, what are some options that can withstand our unpredictable weather? Like it's raining this end of this week. It was 70 yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, usually what we say is during the spring when the weather is still cool, what you should be looking at is growing things for their leaves, um, things for roots, uh, things for bulbs. So you can be planting onions now. You'll get them end of summer. Um, but also things like any of the leafies. So spinach, uh, the broccoli greens, cabbages. Would, would that make sense to be planting them now? Aren't we, aren't, we're, we're not too far away from spring. Shouldn't people be getting ready for their spring crops? Well, yeah, but now you can still be planting because these things are fast. These things will grow six weeks and you've got from seed to finish plant. Yeah. And as long as we're talking about fast veggies, my favorite with kids, radishes. Radishes. Oh, sure. Yeah. 20, like they germinate in three days. days. Yeah. But do they eat them? If you grow it, you'll want to eat it. Yeah, right? that's so true. Yeah. Okay, okay. And they're, they're so cute, you know? I mean, the, <laughs> the plants are cute, so are the kids. But it's really, you know, young children, you, you just, they have a shorter attention span, right? Or you just, this gets them engaged it's quickly. It's not just young kids, yeah. by the way, with the short attention yeah, span. Let's be serious. <laughs> Why are you looking at me? <laughs> I want to go to a call now from Skeeter in Mesquite. Skeeter, uh, Skeeter. what is your comment or your question and welcome? Good morning, kids. How Hi. are we doing today? Splendid. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, um, I just moved to Mesquite from Overton uh, midsummer. And I inherited these wannabe wine barrel tubs. They're black uh -huh. plastic mm -hmm. wannabes. And I was wondering, well, I, I would like to grow some squash in them, uh, but I'm kind of worried uh, when it gets up to 115 or so, uh, how does the soil handle the heat? Do they, do they keep the heat in, these, these plastic tubs? How hot does it get? Uh, pretty darn hot. If 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 the sun's beating on the side of black plastic, it's heating that up, and it's heating up the soil. The inside. soil at least near anywhere near that, and that can kill some roots. The bigger challenge okay. with planting leafy plants in pots is that when you have uh, real hot weather and high winds and low humidity plants transpire, lose a lot of water, and they suck more water out of the pots. And sometimes with pots, um, the plant can pull the water out faster than you can replenish it. But if it's a nice, you know, if it's, you, you just got to stay on top of it. Sometimes with leafy plants and pots, you know, you might have to water them twice a day. And Oh, and by the way, unless you have a sprinkler system doing that, you can't go on vacation. You can't leave town. <laughs> so, so succulents. I mean, I got a dip system for it. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah. it's going to okay. be covered that way. But Okay. But well, I just remember. Wanted, you know, what, what can I grow in there? You said squash. Yeah. Well, squash yeah, well, and melons was, are. Yeah, squash or Crenshaw. I was thinking yeah. about a Crenshaw. Yeah, they mm. they watermelon. Right, they like the heat. They do well in the heat, surprisingly well in the heat. But again, as Norm said, you're going to have to be really attentive to the watering situation because um, these guys love the heat, but they also are mighty thirsty plants. And then one last thought on that: if you have an automatic irrigation system, if you water pots on the same station, the same valve 
as uh, plants in the ground, you have to water more often for pots because they dry out much quicker and you end up overwatering the plants in the ground. So it's best to put your pots on a separate station if you can. Skeeter, thank you so much for that call. Good hearing from you, Skeeter. Yes. <laughs> Good luck in your new home. Now I want to move on to Carolyn from Henderson. Um, welcome to State of Nevada. What's your comment or your question? Well, I was wondering, I have a flower bed that's uh, dried out, and I can't seem to get it, uh, you know, to where it will absorb water. It just okay. goes away. Yeah. And I wonder how to do that. Soil, soil becomes hydrophobic, right? It, if, it gets, if it reaches a certain point of, of dryness, it will actually repel water. The only way to do it is to slowly introduce the water. So with potted plants, if it gets really dry, the soil pulls away from the edge of the pot and the water can drain down the sides. And the easy way to do that, you put it in a saucer and you let it wick, slowly wick the water back up. If it's in a garden bed, I think what I would do is just put some little divots, little holes, little basins every couple feet apart, you know, maybe two or three inches deep, water those, let the water sit in there and slowly absorb back into the soil. And do that repeatedly several times, four or five times over the course of a couple days, and you should be able to rehydrate the bed. You might also want to uh, not just uh, poke holes, but even break up the crust if that's formed. And what I found is if you put, if you're doing some hand watering, if you put a couple of drops, and I do mean a tiny little bit of dishwashing oh, liquid, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, because anything that's water, remember what dishwashing liquid does is it breaks up oils. Well, there are certain water-repelling properties of soil, and a little tiny bit of soap or detergent will actually help to break those up too. That's yeah. a bro tip right there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good stuff, man. Right on. Oh, hey, thank you so much for calling in, Carolyn. And Norman Angela, I have a message here from Jay in Henderson who says, I'd like to get some suggestions for drought-tolerant vines with a fairly dense leaf cover. I hear about cat's claw, but the leaf cover seems so sparse. Could creosote bush be trained into tall hedges, say eight feet? Is it true they put out a substance that stunts growth of other plants if they get too close? And if they get too much water early on, they get ledgy. Um, this is a lot. I want to know your thoughts. Well, uh, so so he, he they're, they're open sparse plants, so they'll never make a good hedge. And he's talking about a vine and, but he's talking about a hedge. So vines are attached to a wall or to a structure. Um, so otherwise vines just sprawl on the ground, which is fine if you want to let them do that. But he wants something with vertical height. So uh, believe it or not, olive trees can make a beautiful hedge. They're tough, tough, tough plants, about as tough as you can get out here. They'll take abuse. Turning plants into hedges is kind of a abusive, right? It, you're just constantly, they put out new growth, you take it off. They put out new growth, mm. you take it off. Now, if you want a six foot, so it depends on how patient and foresightful you are. I, yesterday, I saw a olive hedge, olive trees that was about 10 foot tall and probably six to eight feet wide. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a, you know, and the plants are planted like eight feet apart. Well, these trees want to grow and they're going to want to grow a lot. So they're going to require a lot of maintenance. But 
If you have patience, there is a plant called little ollie. It's a dwarf olive. And little ollie is going to take longer to do the job, but it's also going to grow slower. So once it does become that hedge, it will require a lot less maintenance. And what you have is evergreen, dense, and tough. The other plant that I would recommend for a hedge in, uh, in our soils that's really tough and can take a lot of sun is dwarf Greek myrtle or just regular Greek myrtle. I don't know if you can find the regular, but regardless, I don't know if there's even much difference in growth rate. Again, it's going to take some years to get up there, but it's going to be a really nice, dense hedge with very fine leaves, and it's just going to look gorgeous. The other thing I was thinking is he was saying a vine, and I was picturing um, pyracantha, firethorn, which produces beautiful, beautiful uh, red flowers. Um, the only thing is that something that is named fire thorn, fire thorn, fire thorn Ouch. should give you some some sense of the care with which you must treat it. Wow. Yeah, the the new the new growth has comes the there's a thorn at the tip. Um, yeah, if but it's you, gorgeous. It, oh, it is. It gives you white flowers in the spring. They're musky fragrance. But what's really special about it is the red berries in in the winter. So you get winter color. And it can be a really beautiful plant, but you need to have some sort of trellis or something to structure it against. And then it does require a fair bit of pruning with gloves and safety glasses. Now, <laughs> now I do want to ask, because we're talking fire thorn, we're getting into some of these sharp plants. I just took my dog hiking up in Spring Mountain Ranch this weekend. Mm. And great walk, great hike. Everything was wonderful. Right at the very end, starts gnawing on her foot. Got a thorn caught between her like toes. And the other one, and I had to and pop it out. Plants that are beautiful but very pet friendly. What are your thoughts? Oh, wow. Beautiful and pet friendly. Yeah. Especially in our so, desert ecosystem. Well, a lot of desert plants are spiky, and it's their way of protecting because, you know, a plant that grows really slowly doesn't have a lot of material that it can afford to lose. So it has to be very careful about protecting itself from herbivores. Mm. So here's my philosophy with pokey plants and, and, and pets and kids. They learn. <laughs> they do. No, really. And the one thing I would be really careful about, especially with a, a new animal in your yard or something, um, like agaves, the, the leaves are very, very sharp, the tip yeah. of the leaf, right? So if you have a new puppy or a kid, you know, they can, or adult even, next to a walkway, it, it'll draw blood and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, God forbid it should hit somebody in the eye, right? Yeah. So you just you just nip off that, that final quarter inch. But my backyard has dozens, if not hundreds, of, of pokey plants. And I have two dogs that run over all the time and they don't limp. They, they learn They've really learned. quickly. Like, oh, yeah, I ain't touching that one. I think what I've learned, too, is that having pets around sticky plants, like I've had those bushes that have the blue flowers that get really sticky and sappy, and then they stick all over your pets and uh -huh. they're a nightmare to take out. It, it was just a no-no for me. Like, I realized I'd, I don't want these in my yard. Right. Well, yeah. So I think I think most plants are going to be in, in in a commercial setting from a, from a nursery or something. Most of these plants are not going to be problematic. Although some of these plants are poisonous to dogs, right? And some dogs like to chew. So like sago palm is a really common ornamental small it's a cycad, but it's called sago palm and that every part of the plant is is really toxic. 
Um, so that's another consideration too. And, and if you're not sure what plants you've got or if you get a new place or you're trying to figure out what to plant, you know, um, if you don't know what it is, you can take pictures, go to the nursery, have them help identify it. Once you know what it is, Google's awesome. You yeah. just look it up. Yeah. So I have a question from Elizabeth um, who says, can one of you suggest shrub to plant with very little direct sunlight as there are trees providing medium shade? Shrub will be placed in a large cement planter front of townhome. I was thinking of the lant- the lantana shrub. Lantanas really like a lot more yeah. sun. If you don't if you don't give lantanas enough sun, they easily develop a disease called called powdery mildew. Does, she doesn't say how big she a shrub she wants. No, she doesn't. Okay. Um, there's a uh, an, an evergreen smaller shrub because she said lantana. They don't get very big, so similar in size. It's called uh, dwarf yapon holly. Y a u p o n. It's it's Ilex vomitoria. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Don't eat it, in other words. <laughs> well, no, the, it got its name because like some Indian tribes, uh, you know, they had a tradition where all the guys, the guys, of course, would sit around and drink as much of the tea as possible. And the more you could vomit, you were the winner, I guess. So hence the name Ilex Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So, guy, guy culture. It's it's a thing, you know. But anyways, um, it is it is evergreen. It is dense. It is really tough, and it can take a lot of sun, and it can take a lot of shade. Um, yeah. Another question, Vicky and Anthem. Um, I'm an avid gardener, but brand new to the desert. Can I plant a dwarf grapefruit tree in full sun? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, citrus likes full sun. They're yeah, not, they want not, it. They're not thrilled with the salt in our soils, but yeah. And 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 but here's the thing: when when she plants it, you know, typically what they do, or she has somebody plant it, whatever, put a few emitters on the root ball. Like if it's a 15 gallon, put three emitters on there. Mm-hmm. Get the root ball nice and wet. But as it grows, as as it expands in size, so just like us. Uh, little little kids need a lot less water and less nutrition than big people, and young plants need less. So the key is within a year or two at most, you add additional drip emitters about four feet out, maybe four or five of them, and then put down organic mulch, which is going to take wood chips, which is going to take some of the heat load off the plant. You know, how much does it cost to put in a drip emitter? Because I feel like as someone who's a newer gardener, it feels intimidating to right. want to spend money on irrigation. It's not irrigation. that expensive, especially if you're using the little drippers or if you're using an inline emitter. It's surprisingly affordable. The biggest thing if you're doing irrigation is really the cost of the labor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the parts are, are pretty pretty reasonable. Pretty, yeah, and, and some people get really intimidated by irrigation. Yeah, and um, you know, when it comes to installing a, a, a valve system, installing the valves or a backflow device, that's, you know, that's where you might want to get some professional help. But but once that black tubing comes off the the valve, that kind of flexible tubing, it's called poly tubing. Um, everything else is plug and play. Right, yeah. uh, you get a little device that costs about ninety nine cents to poke a hole in it, and then every fitting you just pop it in, attach the tube, pop the next fitting in it, 
and it's you know I'm I'm I should I shouldn't admit this on the air, but I'm me- really mechanically challenged, right? <laughs> but this stuff is so simple. It's mm-hmm. just it, and again, there's a lot of information on the web if you want to see a, a little video, and it's really easy to do to add a plant to add a few emitters. Also, my Growing in Small Places series, we do have an actual three-hour class on your irrigation. Oh. So you can call the extension office if you, if you want to get a little more hands-on. Yeah, and the Springs Preserve has some, some classes on irrigation as well. So the, the hardest part is digging the, 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 <laughs> the channel, the, uh, um, the trench that you're going to put the irrigation in. Mm. Putting the irrigation itself in is really, really easy. Yeah. But digging a hole around here for, for any purpose is always a challenge. Yeah, We have a true or false question Ooh. from Lorraine I don't in think we've Summerlin. had one of those before. No. I know, spicing it up. Um, Lorraine says, we live in West Summerlin right by Red Rock, and we were told in all caps not to plant any fruit or veggies in our backyard because it will attract coyotes. Is that true? What? You have a pet, <laughs> it's going to attract a coyote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got a cat. It's going to yeah. attract a coyote. You yeah, know, I'm like fruits I don't, and veggies. Uh, I don't know the the, the diet of, of. I always think they're of them omnivores. as carnivores. Yeah, yeah I would, I'm not surprised. There's a, yeah, a and funny when you see story. actually when you see their uh, their scat, it's got it's got it's got, fruits it's got yeah. the hard you know it's got shells. Yeah. yeah, and one time there was a community garden that was plagued with uh, bunnies. So so I think so rats can be a problem too, yeah. right? With fruit. Fruit growing can, trees. Yeah. They attract don't. larger animals. Yeah. yeah right. And but but they don't like citrus. Yeah. They don't eat citrus. They don't eat tomatoes either. Oh, okay. Yeah. So grow tomatoes and citrus. I I think I don't think they'll eat the citrus. <laughs> or probably the tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is the funny thing about this this community garden, they had a problem with bunnies. And so somebody got the great idea of getting a, bringing in a coyote. The coyote, unfortunately, discovered it liked the vegetables just as much as, as the rabbits. So it wasn't the most successful thing in the world. But the thing is that— Where'd they the, get a coyote? I have no idea. Yeah. Some questions I really didn't want, did, to, uh, an, didn't want to ask. Did some of the neighborhood pets go missing afterwards? Or? Uh, well, you know, you finish all the vegetables, then you got to go for the meat, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We probably shouldn't joke about it. No, it's a horrible thought. You know, while we're talking about tomatoes, they're staple for many gardeners. Um, I feel like we ask you this every show. When's the perfect time to plant them to get the most out of our tomato harvest? Is it now? Uh, You will start the seeds indoors, under lights, in a couple of weeks. Hmm. Then towards the end of March, you put those plants outside in the garden. But you don't start them from seed outside and you don't certainly don't start them outside now because they will not grow if the temperatures are below 50. They will just hate you a lot. And, so, and she's absolutely right with one caveat. Some of us in our busy lives aren't going to start seeds. So you just, oh, you just you go buy down the to the nursery right in March and, and go put them out. And you yeah. can do it earlier, but the earlier you do it, the more risk there is. You know, there But are, they're cheap. If you're going to plant two of them and you're swinging by the nursery, grab a couple. <laughs> if those freeze, grab a couple more. There's also extras, extra things you can do, like um, things called a cloach. You can take an empty gallon jug of you know, milk jug or water jug, cut the bottom off. Put that thing over the plant as it's growing. 
And what you have now is a mini greenhouse yeah. for that plant, and you're protecting it from the elements. It's so a cloche? It's called a cloche. Awesome. C-L-O-C-H-E. You Not can a also, cloak, a yeah. cloche. You a can cloche. also get them very, very expensive in ornamental glasses. The Victorians developed these. And, of course, you know of that course. they were doing tons and tons of ornamental glass stuff, but you can just use an old milk container. And that's, that, that's how I'd go, yeah. <laughs> um, Rawl in Las Vegas wants to replace grass in his backyard, but doesn't really want to do artificial grass. Alternatives, question mark? Uh, build a beautiful desert landscape, absolutely. And here's the thing. Make sure you don't have Bermuda grass. And if you do mm. have Bermuda grass, kill it in the summertime chemically, unfortunately. Explain why it's so bad. Because it, 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 it produces above ground runners and below ground runners, and it's a really tough plant. You deprive it of water for a year, it won't die. It just goes dormant, and then it gets a little water and it comes right back. So if you have Bermuda and then you plant a plant there, even if you put down weed fabric, right, mm-hmm. which is not has some downsides to it as well. I don't use it. It's long term, it actually hurts the plants that you want to plant. But that's a long story. Anyways, you plant a plant in Bermuda. The Bermuda, you, you water the plant. Now you're watering the Bermuda. The Bermuda grows up into the plant. You have this weed nightmare. So get rid of the Bermuda first 100%. And if you go to shillinghorticulture.com and click on a tab called resources, there's a, uh, there's a document that we produce called How to Kill Bermuda that will take you through it every single step. And it's just, it is, it is on any garden project, it is the biggest priority. If there's Bermuda, get rid of it. I mean, if there's a documentary about it, it must be pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we spent, we spent a bit of time putting that together because it is a really common weed plant. And if it's not handled well, you have a long-term weed problem that is much, much harder to resolve afterwards than before. Yeah, I just want to say, I, I at one point had in my backyard a, a square yard of uh, what I called the celebrity death match. It was some Bermuda left over from the previous owners and mint left over from the previous owners and vinca, which one of the master gardeners gave me. Uh. And I discovered that vinca can outcompete the Bermuda. It outcompeted the mint. Like Vinca Minor? Vinca Minor with the pretty purple really? flowers. It's very mm. vigorous. So if you just want to have a ground cover that is surprisingly vigorous, uh, you might try that. But also my crate, my new favorite thing is, in addition to desert landscaping, is um, Dysodia. It's oh. it's beautiful. It's very, very low growing. The leaves kind of look like grass, and you can get it both solid green and variegated green soft? and white. It's soft. Yeah, I wouldn't walk on it, but you know, <laughs> if the dog runs across it, the dog will be, oh, this is okay. Um, Wait, Dysodia is the common name, right? No, Dysodia margarita. Margarita? Dimundia. No, Dimundia is different. Yeah, no, Dimundia margarita. Dimondia market, Dysodia silver, is dis- uh, uh, silver carpet. Yeah, silver it's carpet. Dimondia. Dimondia. I'm sorry. Excuse right. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Dimondia is the low growing, beautiful yeah. yellow flowers. I took my lawn out and replaced it with Dimondia. And, and you walk on it when bare feet. So, it, it won't, so grass, we use grass because it's really tough to footwear, right? To foot traffic. Dimondia, not as much. But I take my shoes off and walk on it. It's all spongy. Like it, it massages your feet. 
Oh, it's it's beautiful too, and the little flowers don't come up; they just sit there right in there. And it's got this. It's called silver carpet because it has a silver hue to it. So you can also include it in a garden space, and it just becomes this really truly flat plant that gets maybe an inch tall. Yeah. Oh, and I replaced my lawn with it, right? And it hasn't completely filled in. After five years, there's still some patches. So it's been more of a process than I had originally thought. But um, I've never mowed. Never. You don't, once. You don't mow this stuff. No. It, it doesn't just, get that tall. Yeah. It just does its thing and gives you flowers and it creeps a little bit past the edge and looks really cute. Wow. Okay. But it, it's not that drought tolerant. Anyways. Raul, I hope that answered your question. I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> Replacing grass. grass. Oh. Okay. <laughs> you know, personally, I love the way flowers brighten up my garden. Um, I was a little traumatized after last spring when I called it the attack of the aphids. I saw mm. these little these little flies that were kind of flying around my flowers and I'm like, oh, Oh, life, I have a little biome. And then I come back two days later and there's hundreds of green little dots crawling everywhere. And um, I bought the ladybugs. They did their best. Um, The plants were dead. So what... so if you want it, so so uh, biological pest control is wonderful, and that's what ladybugs are. But ladybugs, you put them in the evening, and you wet the garden first so that there's water source, and they're going to hang out at night, and they're more likely to stay. But still, most of them are going to go to your neighbor's houses, right? Yeah. So th- there's there's a company called Rincon Vitova. It's an insect factory in California, R-I-N-C-O-N hyphen V-I-T-O-V-A. They have lots of different predators that you can purchase, and they'll they'll mail them to you, and they'll overnight them. And so lacewing larvae, oh, yes. right? Yes. Little miniature alligators, and they are reputed to walk a mile and eat a hundred times its body weight be- before it becomes an adult, which then feeds on nectar and stays in your yard. The lacewing adult we already have, but you can bring some in, just sprinkle them out. They eat each other, so they're in their own little separate little little cells, right? And you peel it off, and you just kind of—it's true. They're voracious, and they, they'll even. They, they work really, really well. It sounds like a coliseum. You're just watching and waiting oh, yeah, to yeah. see with, what happens. With, with the hand loop, it's really fun to watch them go hunting. And they you know? will establish a colony as opposed to the ladybugs, which have this tendency to fly yeah, away right, home. But, right. They, but they can't wings. fly. They're going to stay where you put them, and they're going to wander around. And that's their ju- That's all they do is they walk up and down stems looking for, for walk and soft-bodied yeah. insects that they can Pierce and and yeah. I will say, if you have kids, it's the coolest science experiment you could show them. It's just the ladybugs eating, or show the larvae eating. It's. I just love looking at the the eggs though, which are standing upright on a little uh, filament, little filament, a little stalk. So you look at this this round white thing that's sitting on top of this almost invisible stalk. It's really quite attractive. And they do that to keep it away from the ants because the ants walk by and they don't see it up above them, I guess, because that ants hate lacewing larvae. They are mortal enemies. Well, ants like the aphids. They, they milk them. They ranch them. Yeah. Them. Um, Sorry. <laughs> question from Gene and Henderson. Have you heard of a, I think it's pronounced, curapia? As a ground cover instead of grass. Oh, carapia, yeah. Carapia. Yeah. <laughs> like, what a name for carapia. a plant. Yeah, Crappy, we oh, carapia, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, carapia is, um, so it's. Does it have a common name? Uh, I think it does. I don't remember it. Carapia, um, 
I've seen it used once. It's, it's reputed to be a really vigorous replacement for lawns. And um, I, I saw it where somebody put it out as a ground cover. And honestly, to me, it kind of looked like Carapia. <laughs> mm. Oh, really? That good, huh? <laughs> that was funny, huh? Um, it, it wasn't real attractive. It was very vigorous. It, as I recall, it took some damage in the cold. So, you know, I was looking at it as it was in its recovery period. I don't think I would want that all over my yard. Mm. So, but, you know, take a look at it and, and see if you like the look of it. Just remember, when you go to websites where they're selling it or promoting it, they're going to give you the absolute best pictures of it. But yeah. the one encounter I had with it here in town, it was not an attractive plant. I do want to go back to the topic of flowers. And just because we're in that time of year, um, what are colorful options that can handle our dry climate that we could start planting now? Uh, go for spurge. So when, when I think of um, color, I'm thinking of color this time of year, right? It's early, right? It's hard. It, most plants mm -hmm. aren't blooming yet, right? So go for spurge blooms late January, early February. Uh, this year it seems a little bit later. Uh, chartreuse flowers and on a bluish foliage, very, very drought tolerant, needs sun. Another one is Valentine bush. Uh, it's an aromophila. It has dark red flowers. It's called B Valentine bushes because that's about when it's blooming. And they'll get pretty big. They'll get four or five feet. Hmm. Okay. And again, sun lover, very drought tolerant. Both of them like our soils very much. And there's a number of them. So that there's the kind that bloom really early. And then there's the Easter egg emu bush, yeah. which is another aromophila. Yeah. And then there's summertime blue, which actually blooms blue. In the summer. Right. So you can you can have Aromophila flowering six months of the year. Yeah, Aromophila hygrophena, which is blue emu bush. I, yeah, I think it is. It might be summertime blue. It might, no, I think summertime blue is a different variety. Anyways, that that's another one. That, so actually, Aromophila hygrophena, H-Y-G-R-O-P-H-A-N-A. Does, you got to move. Once it's established, you move the water back. But this little plant, is it, it'll get about two feet tall, three feet wide, and it'll bloom spring through fall, probably about eight months of the year with blue flowers, really, really pretty, and you never have to do anything to it. And you don't need to water it much. Mm. Yeah. yeah, really nice plant. I have a question from Laura from Pahrump who asks, I have a lot of clay soil in my garden and I'm having trouble growing anything. What can I do to improve my soil? Compost. Yeah. Compost. Yeah, it, Clay is the hardest to work with because if you have sand, you add stuff, it changes pretty quick. Clay is really hard to change. Compost uh, organic matter is the one thing long-term that will really break it up. The other thing, though, with clay, plant your plants high, right? That's going to help. You actually plant them a little bit above the ground, just slope the soil up to it. That helps air get into it. The challenge with clay soils is getting oxygen down there. Um and you're going to water less frequently. Um, you, it takes longer to wet the soil, but it, it holds water long term, much longer than a sandy soil. Or even a loamy soil, which is what there is a lot of in Pahrump. So I'm surprised that you have such a, a heavy clay oh, this soil. Is Pahrump? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, um, but you definitely, once it gets wet, it stays wet. That's the issue with clay. And it'll, it'll hold on to that. And it's so densely packed 
that so you wind up with soil with hard stuff and water. And if you're thinking about what to plant, you know, if you're looking at ornamentals, um, uh, plants for beauty, if you think of the plant that you want, come up with a list of plants you're interested in planting, and then look them up, a lot of times you'll read likes well-draining soil. Well, that's not clay. So it's likely not going to do well in, yeah. in your garden. If that's you have critical a lot of clay. to remember that yeah. look, look for well, the, the well drainage draining. it needs. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I hope that helps, Laura. Um, I have a question from David from Summerlin. I'm worried about the extreme heat during early spring and how it might affect my plants. How do I protect them from the heat? What kind of plants are they? No description on the plants. If he's worried about early spring heat, oh my God, let's not tell him about, about summer. summer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Must uh, be new. <laughs> I mean, there's a number of things you can do. If, if you're worried about too much sun, then you can use a shade cloth up to, they say, 30% if that's what you're looking for. Maybe, maybe he has new plants. If they're young plants, um, you want to make sure that they're well supported and they're not in such intense bright sunlight from the very beginning that the leaves burn. Um, but... But it kind of is really going to depend on what's planted and where. And, I mean, if you think that the spring is going to be hot, just don't even think about what July is going to be like. Yeah, that's why I'm wondering if he's not. He's just worrying about new plants going in the ground and how they're going to tolerate. Yeah. Um, it's really going to depend on the plant. Yeah, some of, some plants just really love heat. Some Some really struggle with it, the heat, and then some struggle with direct sunlight. So it just depends on the species. You know, we've talked in the past, Norm, you are a plant lover. You also know when it's time to kill a plant or to <laughs> get rid of a plant. Yeah. And for myself, that's been a hard balance to find of like... <laughs> for me too, you know, the way. It was really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. the sun's out and it's really hot, I'm like, I got to bring in my plants or I got to put them back outside in the evening because I feel like they need air or whatnot. But it's true. I, I often wonder, how long can I do this for until, you until know... Until your back gives out. Oh, Forever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you love plants, people love plants, and we have relationships, and we're willing to to, to take care of them. I have, I have a little aloe in a window. I don't even know what it's called, and I've had it for 15, 20 years. It's no bigger than two or three inches, and it's red and purple and just the cutest thing ever. And I pet its leaves all the time and oh. tell, I, tell it, you know, I love you. You're going to grow. I don't know if I say I love you, but I probably do. I but I just think it's so cute. So yeah. so these things are so rewarding and engaging. You know, I can't speak for Angela. We're both plant geeks, right? I didn't grow up as a plant geek. I started playing with plants and working with them, and and it, they <laughs> literally grow on you and suck you in. It's the number one hobby in the world. Yeah. You know, you know I grew up in the fifth floor of a walk-up apartment in the South Bronx, not a big agricultural area. So it was some time before I yeah. actually was in a plant growing area. And I remember living in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, putting our tomatoes in the ground on the 4th of July. Yeah. Think about that for just a moment. Somebody called me and said, "Can I? is it too late to put on my tomatoes? And I said, it's July. And he was like... Are you, are you in upstate New York, possibly? <laughs> you know, but I realized as you're talking about these plants that you've... When I first moved into my home, I there was it was blank pretty much in front of the house. And I said, oh, what I really want is a cassia. I want a feathery cassia. Uh -huh. So I put in this feathery cassia, and now I'm saying, I've got to cut back this feathery cassia. It's six feet tall, seven feet wide. I wonder how much I can cut it and not damage it. 
but it's in there for 20 years. So I'm pretty sure it's got a fairly established root system. Some cassias come back really well and some wow. some don't. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So I'm not going to do a rejuvenation pruning right. on this thing. And that's Norm Schilling and Angelo Callahan, co-host of our Desert Bloom series. Thank you so much for joining us today, We're Norm and done? Angela. We're done. It went by so fast. Oh, my it's God. A, it, it's always such a delight. Thank you, Norm. Oh, thank you, Angela. Of course. And thank, thank you, Zach. Zach. Of yeah. course. And thank you to everyone who called and sent in their questions. 